Welcome to the Whiskey, Jazz, and Leadership Podcast. Subscribe now so you don't miss a drop of straight talk you can't get anywhere else. We discuss the whiskeys to drink, music to listen to, and what it really takes to be an effective leader. I'm your host, Galen Bingham, the leadership strategist. Tonight's guest, CEO of Lead at Any Level, Amy Wanninger. Hey, what you drinking? Okay, guys, I continue to meet with people just to give you a glimpse as to the folks that I know. So these are just people that are random folks in my uh, contact list. And I'm literally just running my finger down and saying, okay, let me bring this amazing person in. But every now and then I get to talk to a friend who I haven't talked to in a long time. And so you get to hear us get reacquainted. That's going to be the case with this conversation because I get to share with you another amazing, amazing friend. She actually speaks all over the world. She consults with companies all over the world, but you're going to have her to yourself for the next, for the next couple of episodes. So with that, Amy Wanninger, welcome to the show. How are you doing? I'm great, Galen. Thank you so much for having me here. I'm just so excited because we connected a few years back and we were like in a couple of programs together. And then you went off and and just started doing some amazing stuff, like I said, all over the world. And I got pretty busy with some of the things I was doing with some C-suite executives all across the country. And so, you know, we came together and I say, let's rekindle this relationship on whiskey, jazz and leadership. So as my listeners know, I've got a ton of questions as any good coach would have. But my first question, and some say it's the most important question. So what are you drinking? So what I'm drinking tonight, and we're going to have to be careful with this because I haven't eaten anything today. I just want to go on the record of saying that I am, I'm drinking a fat tire amber ale in honor of the theme of the show. I'm having an alcoholic beverage. I don't usually, I've eaten nothing today. So if I start slurring about halfway through the episode, you'll know why it's because I am, I am out of practice here. If I hear a slur, that's when I'll ask the juicy questions. <laughs> if I start mumbling, we're in trouble. <laughs> Well, hey, well, hey, well, that just means I've got to, I've got to match you with the uniqueness because my listeners know I put a lot of thought into what I drink based upon who I'm going to be speaking with. And very similar to you, I don't really do a whole lot of uh, this kind of whiskey. I, you know, I've got some for special occasions, but rye, I have not really done a whole lot of rye. But I do have a couple of bottles of really, really high-end, people say it's high-end rye. I I wouldn't know because, like I said, I don't drink a whole lot of rye. But this one's really, really good. Tonight, I'm going to share some Willet Straight Rye Whiskey. And uh, this was the recommendation of a really, really good friend of mine. Uh, And I thought, well, if it's a recommendation of a good friend, and I'm going to be rekindling a relationship with a good friend, Sounds like a match. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to open up this Willet Rye. And uh, let's see. It's beautiful. The color of that is beautiful. Warm me just a little bit. 
and uh, this is really, really, oh my gosh, the bouquet is really, really fruitful. And uh, yeah, I'm going to jump into enjoying this. And I'm going to ask that you just share a little bit about your background and not not only what you've been doing since the last time that we've hung out together, but just what has the journey been like for you to end up on stages and in rooms talking with companies and executives all over the world? Because uh, you're pretty sought after, pretty highly sought after consultant, coach, facilitator. And I just want to give people a sense as to what, what it takes to become who you are. Wow. What a question. So, oh goodness, where to begin? Um, I grew up in my professional career in information technology and about the last 12 years of that 20 year journey were in the insurance industry. While I was working in the insurance industry, um, the company that I was working for hired a chief diversity officer. And I said, wait, what's that? And my ambition originally, now, I don't know if you know this about me, Galen, but I come from a very, very, very small town in Southern Indiana called Santa Claus, Indiana. It is literally in the middle of nowhere. In fact, I don't even live in the town of Santa Claus. I live outside of it in no town at all. And the people that I grew up around didn't go to college. I didn't really know people that went to college. So when I went to college, I didn't know that I was there to figure out what I was going to do for the rest of my life. I thought I was there to learn interesting things. And so I just took classes on things that interested me. And I ended up with a degree in criminal justice and African-American studies and minors in sociology and Spanish. And it was my ambition because I had read about them somewhere, don't know where, uh, probably for my, for my history courses in the African-American studies department about the ACLU. And I thought, well, I could be a lawyer and I could work for them. And then my senior year of college, I found out how much law school was going to cost. And I found out what pro bono meant. And I realized that with my personal and financial background, I was never going to become a civil rights attorney. So I went back to school, got a second degree in computer science, took a 20-year detour in IT. Well, the company I was working for in 2012, I believe it was, hired a chief diversity officer. And I started reading about what she was there to do, what she was going to accomplish. And I said, oh my gosh, you can get paid for that now? I want that job. But from where I was, right? First of all, I didn't have the the life experience or the strategic background or you know any of the qualifications I would need to do that job. But that didn't stop me from showing up and trying to help. And so basically, if they didn't lock me out of the room, I was in there helping. And probably honestly, in the way that like my kids help me with things, right. Where I'm just kind of like in the way, but I real my heart was in the right place. Right? I really wanted to be you know doing something. But one thing I noticed was through all the training and all of the things that we went through, my question, my burning question was I'm one person in this huge organization. I don't have a ton of positional power. What can I do to make a difference? What can I do to make this work environment better for other people? And I didn't get a lot of answers to that question. And so I set out to figure those out for myself. And in 2018, I wrote my first book, Network Beyond Bias. And I started talking about how if we change our networks, we change the flow of opportunity. And there was such an audience for that, that I left my job to do this full time. And the rest, as they say, is history. 
it's a fascinating story because I am familiar with Santa Claus and it's right outside of Ferdinand. The sign actually says Ferdinand Santa Claus. And I'm going to tell you, that is not the kind of area that I would expect people to fall in love with African-American studies. That's just, that was, that would not connect in my mind that that would be a hotbed of African-American studies and Nikki Giovanni and James Baldwin. And so how, how do you become interested in the things that you decided to study in college? Although, as you say, you, you weren't after trying to find a job, you were after how can I study things that I'm interested in? Yeah. So, you know, it's funny. Nobody's ever asked me that question. Like, where did that come from or where did that start? So you're right. So the county that I grew up in, when it has about 20,000 people total, the entire county is 20,000 people. My graduating class in high school had 83 or 86 people, right? Really small towns, really small schools. And the population, at least at the time I was there, and it probably hasn't changed too much, was I looked this up, 99.9997% white. And it was, I mean, just incredibly homogeneous, right? I was, I was different because I wasn't German and Catholic. So very insulated, very sheltered kind of world. And everybody was pretty much the same. But in high school, I was a super nerd. So you have to understand, I was like, I was a mathlete. Right. I was on like, they had this thing called spell bowl, which was like when you got too old to be in the spelling bee, but then you could like do it as a team sport. I mean, super nerdy. Right. But we did this thing called academic bowl. And one of the themes, one of the years that I was in academic bowl was African-American literature. So we read poetry by Langston Hughes and my, uh, Maya Angelou. We read uh, short stories by Richard Wright. And then we were asked questions about these things. And when I read them, it was so different from the Beowulf and the Canterbury Tales that I'd been reading in class. And it seemed so, so raw and so relevant and so, so human in a way that literature had not been for me up to that point. I just fell in love with the musicality of the language of, of these poets and just the stories just really, they just really gripped my imagination. And I, I was like, oh my gosh, there's this window into this this whole world that I didn't didn't know existed or I knew it existed, but it's out there somewhere. And then all of a sudden it was something I could personally connect to. And so when I went to college, I had to take some classes, you know, literature classes, history classes. And I thought, well, I want more of that because names and dates and history didn't mean much to me, but people's struggles, people overcoming, people persevering in the face of absolute having the odds against them, right? I, I always look at like the civil rights movement as, you know, people didn't know they were going to win, but they went out there and did that anyway. And just the courage and the the tenacity and the vision that that took just really spoke to me. And before I knew it, I had a major because I'd taken so many classes. Wow. You know, and, and, and that really does shed a little light into the first time that you and I met because- mm-hmm. Uh, when you and I met, I, I, I had just gotten involved with the National Speakers Association. And when I joined, I really just joined, to be totally honest, I joined to have it on my resume that I was part of the National Speakers Association. And so it was like that for about a year, maybe two years. And then I finally decided to join 
the Black National Speakers Association, which was kind of an affinity group inside of the National Speakers Association, all professional speakers, but an affinity group. And they were doing a deep study of the book, Thinking or Rich. And we've had Ms. Ann McNeil on the show, and we've had a couple of people on the show uh, who were part of that study. And most of the people in the group, being that it was the Black National Speakers Association, they were, you know, they had some some tan to their skin. They they reflected the sun like I, but not you. So you were kind of a different, I'm like, kind of a different person. What was it about the Black National Speakers Association that not only caused you to want to join, but you really stood out as someone who was uh, one of the many leaders kind of kind of leading the work that we were doing with Thinking Grow Rich. So what was that about? Thank you. I'm I'm blown away by that by that comment. Thank you. Um, so I was invited in to that group um, by Susan Lindner, another white lady in the group, ironically. And she said, I think this would be really good for you. You ought to come do this. And at the time, I really didn't know anything about Black NSA. I was a member of NSA, I think, maybe. And I certainly wasn't familiar with the book, Think and Grow Rich, but I was at kind of a, a point in my business where I had just left my job. I still wasn't making the money I needed to make. I was kind of I was kind of in freak out mode, if you want to know the truth. And she said, I think this would be really good for you to help you get your mind right. I said, okay, let's do it. So I did. Well, one of the things that I talk about in my book, Network Beyond Bias, is if you want to grow your network, go to the conference that isn't for you, right? Or go to the breakout session that's not for you at the conference you're going to. So if you're in higher ed, go to the tech conference. And if you're in tech, go to the financial services conference. And if you're in financial services, go to the education conference, because my goodness, we all need each other. But then beyond that, I'm the one at conferences where if I see, you know, if I'm at a higher ed conference because I'm speaking there and I see a breakout session on getting your tenure while black, I'm in that session because I want to hear people talk about how is the environment different for them than it is for me so that then I can go out and try to not contribute to those obstacles anymore or try to tear them down or try to amplify that in places where those voices aren't getting heard. Because so much of the time we segregate ourselves into the women's group or the black group or the Hispanic group or the Asian group. But if we don't talk to each other, we don't understand how our struggles are connected and we don't understand how we can help each other. So I always tell people, go show up as an ally, go sit in the back of the room somewhere that wasn't designed for you and listen and learn, and then take that with you into the spaces that you go in and apply it. I I love that. And I can relate to that uh, a great deal. And I've said this quite a bit in, in some of the social groups that I'm in, that I, I really do find a lot of frustration with today's political climate. And, and not for all the obvious reasons. The reason I find frustration with today's political climate is because I'm unable to have the kinds of conversations that I enjoy having, where I, I know what I believe and I, I believe that I'm right, but there's a there's a good chance that my my mom was wrong and I might not be the smartest person on the planet. And so I love talking to people who have a different perspective to understand why do they believe what they what they believe and might they have a better handle on the truth than I. And so I really like having that conversation. 
But in today's climate, you can't you can't really have that conversation because if you don't believe like I believe, then I must call you the Antichrist and 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 pledge my life to destroy you. <laughs> that seems to be the environment that we're in right now. Um, we lack nuance as a country. Yes. <laughs> That just, that really saddens me because like I said, I love talking to people who have a different, who, who um, subscribe to a different philosophy than I do. Uh, I love talking to people of a different, who have a different faith than I do. Maybe they don't even believe in God and I do. And I'd love, I'd love to have that conversation, not to convert them or persuade them or to change them, but I just really want to understand in today's environment, that conversation doesn't seem to have a home anymore. And that seems to be a big part of how you navigate your education post you know, school is by getting into situations where chances are very good. You don't know everything that everyone else knows. And you purposely put yourself in situations where uh, you might feel a little awkward. You might feel a little outside, but you're doing that for the purpose of, of learning. How are you able to navigate the space where uh, I'm sure people looked at you kind of strange. <laughs> uh, I'm sure you know people weren't may not have been as open to some of the some of the environments that you're in. How are you still able to have those kinds of conversations in a world that's not as accommodating for those conversations? So I think it's important that we recognize that sometimes we have a lot of power because we are part of the in group, and sometimes we lack power because we are not part of the in group depending on where we are, right? This being in or being out is very fluid. And the position that I take is if I'm out, if I'm not part of the in-group and the in-group is marginalized in some way that I am not, it's my job to show up and listen. Listen first, contribute second, and really listen and not come in with my ideas about how how they can fix everything by being more like me because you know, you said, does somebody have a better handle on the truth than I do? Well, the thing is, my truth and your truth are completely different. Because if I walk into a room, I'm perceived and received much differently as a five foot three white woman, you know, from the Midwest than you are. And two things can be true that don't match because we're looking at them from different places. They're coming at us from different places. You know, what I tell people to do is look, if you're uncomfortable about being in a place, that's probably where you need to be. Wait, 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 back up, back up. You need to say that one more time. You need to say that one more time. (laughs) If you're uncomfortable being in a place, it's probably where you need to be. Wow. So many people don't ever get uncomfortable. They don't ever put themselves in places where they're the only. And how are we ever going to understand what that's like if we don't put ourselves in that position? And I've been the only woman many times. I worked in IT for 20 years for crying out loud. But to be the only person of my race or to be the only person my age or to be the only person you know, from the US or the only person from the Midwest, I have this, this theory, and you can tell me if I'm right or wrong in your experience. When we're part of the majority, we're very candid, Right. People who are part of the majority in any room will say what they think, usually, more so, right? People who are in the minority, if you're the only in a room, your emotional intelligence is dialed up to 11. And so I try to be places where I'm forced to be very emotionally intelligent, 
where I'm forced to listen and not respond and not react and process and think and go away and, you know, unpack it, right? In addition to places where I can be candid, but I think we all need both because I think we need to be able to practice those things and and try out our ideas and think about them. Wow, that is really, really good. I I, I uh, had never really thought about it like that before, but that's hitting me hard because in those spaces where I'm part of the majority, I get to be candid, right? I'm not even thinking about it. And uh, in some of the work that I've started doing relative to DE&I work, we, we started talking about this idea of privilege. And the way we start talking about that is we start talking about height privilege because I'm six foot two, right? And so it's nothing for me to put something on the top shelf if there's space there, right? If there's storage space there, why wouldn't we use that space? Well, my, my wife is five foot four and she tells me all the time, okay, well, if you're going to put it up there, you're going to be the one to get it every single time because the rest of us can't reach that, right? And my daughter is left-handed And so we talk about handed privilege because most of the world is situated for people who are right-handed. And she talks about how, yeah, I mean, it's hard for me to, you know, get scissors. It's hard for me to use the can opener. It's hard for me to do all these things that I don't think about because I'm part of the majority. And it is just, just based upon your statement, I get to be candid in those situations because the world is kind of built for my comfort. The world is built for my ease. And just the thought of how that carries through to some of the more complicated conversations around gender and around race and and nationality, I think that those same principles hold true. Yeah, absolutely. And I think privilege is is best defined as the things that we don't have to think about regularly. But we can count on it being there for us whenever we need it, although we don't have to even think about it. Right. And typically, we don't identify along our our axes of privilege, right? If somebody says, tell me about you, right? You wouldn't start with, I'm a man. Tell me what makes you different or what makes you unique or what makes, you know, you know, what, you know, if you, if you really dig into like, who are you, right? You're probably not going to start on the privileged axes of your identity. You're probably going to start in the places where you've seen struggle or where you've felt othered. And we all, we all do that, I think. But, you know, it's, it's just interesting that as we, as we navigate the world, right, we don't know all the privilege we have until we meet somebody without it or until it's pointed out to us. And one way I explain that is every disease that you don't know how to spell is a privilege you have. Mm. Oh, right. Because if you think about, you know, you you watch these commercials with these really long, like if you have blah, 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 right, these really long names of things, and it's like somebody's whole life depends on their under their intimate understanding of what diabetic retinopathy is. Their whole life is is centered around managing diabetic retinopathy, right? But for most of us, we don't even know what that means. Hey, it's not too late. Hit that subscribe button so you're sure to catch the next episode. If you're really enjoying the vibe, leave us a review or become a VIP for guests and show exclusives. Cheers.
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.